0: The leopard just sat there, froze, didn't move a muscle looking at us, then suddenly it dropped down on all fours, on its belly, and it crept along the ditch and out of sight.
1: And everyone just looked at each other in disbelief, thinking, wow, was that real, what we just saw? You
2: say, well, I've seen this big cat, and some people just flatly refuse. They think that Britain's such a sweet little island, we shouldn't have predators that size.
0: I heard this growl behind me. Nothing like a dog's growl. And just like anything else in life, you're sat on your own there. I don't care who you are, how brave you are.
3: Something like that will put the shivers up your spine.
4: As she was walking before the cub came out, she flicked this tail. She literally flicked it in the air. And I simply could not believe what I was seeing. It was the most extraordinary feeling.
0: It threw its head back, he said, and it made this sort of rant.
3: But when you actually realise that there are big cats living in Britain, it changes everything. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. Why are unofficial big cats being seen, and could these cats even be naturalising without us knowing? If you've had a big cat encounter in Britain, and would like to discuss it, email me at rick at bigcatconversations.com You can find other episodes on the website bigcatconversations.com I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Welcome to episode 18 of Big Cat Conversations. We are sitting around a pub table in Blaisden on the edge of the Forest of Dean in the Red Heart after a gathering in Longhope where the 100 people turned up for a Big Cat talk. We've been talking Big Cats for two hours now. We're going to go for another hour in the pub and there are four people around the table to discuss the topic with us. There is Marie and Walter who live nearby in Longhope where we did the talk this afternoon. There's James from Shropshire visiting. Thanks for coming, James, and Tim near Gloucester. So very much a fireside chat round the table in the pub. Here we go. So, Marie, first of all, we're going to hear from you from a sighting before you moved to Gloucestershire. That's right?
4: Yes, it is. Roughly 20 years ago, I would think, we were living in Oxfordshire at the time, little village called Sparsholt, which is nestled at the bottom of the Lambourne Downs. Lots and lots of open country up there, obviously. I was driving back, having gone into the vets in the morning to pick up my dog who'd been in overnight, So we're looking at around about half past eight, quarter to nine in the morning, coming down a very long single track road to get to where I was living at that point. We were about a mile from the village, so it's a long little single track road. Came out through some trees, and I've got an open field on my right-hand side, open field on my left-hand side, and suddenly walking across in front of me, big black cat. I'm lucky enough to have been to Africa. I knew I was looking at a cat. Wasn't quite sure what sort of cat it was. Bit confusing. Head like a cheetah. Tail like a leopard, great big black cat, and it wandered across into the field on the left hand side of me as I'm driving, where there was a standing crop. I'm not sure whether it was barley or wheat, it was still green, but the top of the cat was visible above this crop and it just then disappeared. Dog in the back is going mad, the cat of her dreams. Please let me out, mum, I'd like to go and see. So I stopped the car, and I wasn't frightened. I thought, this is interesting. So I get out of the car, and I walk to the edge of the field, and I thought, you're an idiot. Why are you out of the car? Can't see the cat at all. So I get back in the car, carried on driving down to where I was at home, livery yard. So I walk in. Guess what I've seen, everybody? Ha, 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 what are you on? No, 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 what I've seen. I know I've seen. No, you haven't. You're mad. And one girl said, oh, yes, she said, I see it sunning itself on the downs regularly. Big black cat. Yeah, that's the one big black cat. It wasn't frightening. It was incredibly interesting. And this cat wasn't in a hurry. I mean, it was moving with purpose. It wasn't galloping along. It was moving with purpose. And it took no notice of me, no notice of the screaming terrier in the back of the car, no notice of the car, and just did its own thing and vanished. You know, within seconds, there was nothing. I was lucky, I think, because it had come from a field that had been There were tractor tracks all the way through this field, so it was quite flat. There were spaces in the crops, so you could see, and it then disappeared into a field where there was a standing crop, and just gone. You know, you would not have known. If I hadn't been there at that moment, I would not have seen the cat.
3: How long did that encounter take, Mary?
4: Probably only seconds. I mean, if you imagine this is a single track road, so what are you looking at, 15 or so foot across the road, I suppose? I didn't notice it on my right until suddenly it was in front of me, across the car, into the field on the left, probably the same distance as the width of the road, and gone.
3: Any more description about it? You said it seemed to be an oddball one.
4: From my knowledge of cats, it had a head like a cheetah, so a fairly small, fairly round head, big body, low slung back, very long tail, and this thing, I mean... You're looking at an animal which is probably two foot, two foot six at the shoulder, so a big animal. Definitely wasn't a dog, didn't move like a dog. We all know cats move, they slink, they sort of saunter along, don't they? And this slunk, I think that's the word, I mean a dog would have looked. A dog would have looked at me, what's the car doing? And this just was sole one purpose, it was going forward in a straight line, no no notice of me at all.
3: Are there any points or questions from the other guests? Anybody want to ask Murray about it?
4: What was the
0: countryside like? Was it quite flat and open there?
4: Um, to my right hand side, yes. To the left-hand side, smaller fields and wooded areas.
0: But not any steep hills and stuff no, like no, that? No,
4: this is at the bottom of the Lambourne Downs. So if you can imagine the Lambourne Downs where the racehorses and things are trained, yeah. it's quite steep. You come off the downs, it's like coming down to an escarpment into the bottom of a valley. So this would be the equivalent of a valley bottom. Yeah, yeah
0: now I'm, I'm just trying to get a background on the different sort of topography that leopards like i'm quite amazed that leopards get seen in norfolk when it's really flat yeah.
4: we think that this one literally a couple of fields away from where my car was a farmer had just turned out probably a dozen or so young bullocks for the first time in the spring and we think that they disturbed the cat and it had just moved across
0: mm, yeah, yeah
3: thank you that was james from shropshire asking the question but James of course you're making the assumption it was a leopard I think later on Murray is going to ask a question to us all about whether it was actually a leopard and we've heard previously on the podcast recently Lincolnshire, flat open barren landscape of Lincolnshire
4: I mean the interesting thing about this sighting is that we are fairly sure that this cat circled the area regularly in that you would have weeks where there was no wildlife sounds no foxes, no pheasants, no nothing the whole countryside was quiet and you felt as though you were watched, and then gone, normal countryside again. And then three or four weeks later, round it came again.
2: They quite often say that, you know, when you're in the wilderness, you should take cues off the other wildlife that's around you, so that sort of observation in itself is quite telling.
4: Countryside normally is actually quite noisy, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. You know,
4: there's birds, there's all sorts. That area is big hunting country. There's a lot of foxes. You never heard them when the cat was around. There was just nothing.
2: The total change in yeah, the environment complete. based on the, the yeah. behavior of the other world. I wild mean, dogs. Thing,
4: I suppose the thing is, you've got an apex predator in there, you and know, they all know it, yeah, you know, and really quite interesting. And we noticed, I mean, all of us have got dogs, you notice a difference in the dog's behavior. I don't think I want to go down that way today, Dad, thank you. So, you know, but it's very, very interesting,
1: fascinating.
3: Okay, thanks very much,
1: Murray. Walter, next, Mary's sighting stimulated my interest in the big cats and we deduced that this cat had probably been disturbed by cattle. It ran down a footpath that had been sprayed in the field of corn. It did a poo, and then it ran a tractor tramline to get to the road. So the cat did. We, We deduced that. I did manage to find some tracks, and the cat had never run that way before because it walked through some very soft, sticky mud that it wouldn't have done if that was its normal habitat.
0: A lot of the tracks I find are in fine sand of less than a centimetre thick, and there's lots of areas of mud, but I don't really expect a cat, I wouldn't expect a house cat, let alone a large leopard or a puma, to walk through soft, mucky mud.
4: Yeah, if you could imagine that the the soft mud we're talking about is where maybe there's been a puddle, Mm
0: -hmm. and there's
4: that soft sediment left. Yeah, yeah, So it's very much like that, hence the fact we were able to get the clear tracks
0: the better tracks that I've seen, which look asymmetrical. You can't quite see the back, but there's no claws, and it's in fine sand on a large track where a cat's been travelling on the easiest way for it to travel on that.
1: Dogs wander anywhere. A cat, doesn't it, picks its way about.
0: Dogs love a bit of muck and that when they're off the lead and that, don't they?
1: So, Walter, we'll get on to yours now. Your observations from Ashdown Ashdown Forest. Ashdown Forest, yes. We moved from Oxfordshire to Sussex on the edge of the Ashdown Forest, and we were on a a estate of about 400 acres with blocks of woodland and a small group of sheep and a lot of ponies and some cattle. The place was understocked and the stock weren't dealt with like a professional farmer looks after them. They were sort of free range and not looked at very often except to see that they were all alive and standing up and left naturally. And we found when we got there there were kills of both deer and sheep which we think was done by a big cat because of the way the carcass was handled it looked as if one deer kill for example the skin had been rolled back the deer was in a shallow stream and if it had been killed by a person they would have taken the legs away from the carcass the same with the sheep the sheep was a young sheep we think that the cat dropped out of a tree onto it from where the kill was. The bones were licked and rasped. They weren't pulled all over the place. And we think it was a big cat that did that as well. We were there for about 12 years, and we found evidence every year of big cat activity. Walter, was
3: this the heathland part of Ashdown Forest, or was it farmland on the edge of the heathland?
1: Farmland on the edge of the heathland, and there were plenty of other places where a cat could live. There was a private golf course that was rarely used, which had got stands of scrub where a cat could lay up. There would be sand pits where it could do its droppings. Good cat country and a lot of deer and quite a few rabbits. Did did you notice certain
0: months when it was there or what time period? Did you take notes on, for example, how many weeks or maybe a month or six weeks that it would be that you'd have activity and then there would be periods where you wouldn't? Did you notice, for example, it was regularly there in August but not in December
1: or anything like that? The cats seem to come mostly in the autumn. In the spring, we reckon that with all the corn that is growing, there's a lot of countryside that people don't go to because they don't go through the fields of corn or the fields of mowing grass. So there's huge areas of countryside where a cat can live without being disturbed. Nobody notices or misses the odd rabbit that's disappeared or the hares. They do miss pheasants when they come in in the autumn to, to start predating on the pheasants. The keeper will notice that.
2: I mean I think that's quite interesting really the sort of predation on known livestock and sort of wildlife that's already existing there's an abundance of food in the habitat in Britain for for them to prey on really so like you say the odd hare, the odd rabbit, the odd pheasant you know the deers as well they're not going to notice and like you say the fields of corn and all of that provide perfect cover they're going to be undisturbed and they've got perfect passage to get around you know these are creatures of stealth that if they don't want to be seen they're not going to like Rick always says that Polish saying they say poland the lynx will see you before you see it sort of thing you know so these are creatures that thrive on their ability to make the most of their stealth and their ambush tactics really and they would quite happily live in those sort of areas undisturbed i think it's perfectly possible
4: one one strange thing we found was the winter kills which there were quite a few of very often were not predated by anything else so foxes wouldn't touch them badgers didn't touch them and a carcass even if the cat didn't go back would just sit now, in winter, you think everything's hungry. One red deer stag that we found... Oh, Fallow deer. beg your pardon, in water, and we think it had actually probably drowned because it had got one antler wedged underneath the root. Definitely cat-eaten, but nothing else touched this thing, and it basically rotted away in the end. I mean, nothing touched it.
3: When you were in that area, were you receiving sightings reports occasionally? Did anybody back this up with sightings reports?
4: We
1: took a stand at Mitchell Priory... And I got people filling in forms saying what they had seen then in the locality of East Sussex. And it was surprising how many people wanted to talk about what they'd seen because nobody had fully believed them before. Interesting. What colours? Black and brown? Black and brown. We actually saw, on one occasion, we saw a long tail disappear into the hedge when we were driving down a road with a trailer behind the vehicle, making quite a lot of noise. It was a straight bit of road, a single track road, and we saw a long tail disappear up into the hedge. And we did stop, but we never saw any more of it. And we think that was a big cat.
3: Do you think the Heathland itself was good territory for the cats? We've discussed Heathland as a potentially good scrubby ambush area for cats in the past on the podcast. Or do you think it was just this was sort of open countryside and big cats can live anywhere and there was no significance to the Heathland?
1: Ashdown Forest which is mainly Heathland has approximately 250 fallow deer killed per year on roadkill and it's generally thought by a friend of mine who lives in Sussex who gets reports of big cats reported to him. He considers that the big cats come off the fields when the corn is cut and they go to Ashdown Forest in the winter time when there's plenty of deer for them to feed on and the south downs are inhospitable with the wind whipping across it so the cats go into the farmland and live further in country. So the concentration of cats on Ashton Forest, he reckons, goes up in the wintertime.
3: Very interesting seasonal patterns again, isn't it? Walter, that's brilliant. Thanks ever so much. And we're going to go to Shropshire
0: next with James. I've had three sightings. The one that really confirmed that I would seeing a big cat and I had big cats in the area it was at the end of July uh, it was 8 o'clock in the evening it was quite a windy evening and I remember walking into the forest and I was expecting to see deer because you often see them on cloudy windy evenings because the sound of the wind covers your footfall etc I'd gone about 200 yards into up the forest track and I was just coming around a corner and at the top of the rise appeared what looked like an extremely large dog I thought it was a lurcher at first and it just stood there and I noticed that it, was, it must be very very old because the way it was hunched down and it had its head down, and it was just stood there studying us. Maybe that was about two seconds, then I bent down, put my dog on the lead, stood up, it turned to the right, and I could see it was between four to five foot body size, not three foot high because that'd be way too big, maybe a maximum of 27 inches total height. In one leap, it crossed the path and then disappeared in the bushes. And I thought, well, what does a dog do that? What I really noticed, what really came into my mind just before it leapt into the bushes was at the top of the haunches, there's a big ridge where the tail comes out and goes down. And that just really stuck in my mind. And the black slinky skin and the muscle turn. and I went, big cat. And, and I stood there frozen to the spot. It's, it's, it's like everything just really rushes into it, that, that one. It's an incredibly intense moment when you, you actually get the words, that's a big cat. You know, and uh, there's part of me wanted to go up there and try and see into the bushes to confirm what I'd just seen, and the better part of me realised that the cat was probably still right there, and that going up there when you don't know so much about leopards or pumas and their habits, etc. And I had a small dog, and I literally backed down slowly, backed down the track, looking all around me because I didn't know if it was going to come round to the back or up the top or what was going on. I got to the car and uh, I went home. And I spent the next 24 hours <laughs> just looking at videos, evidence, everything I could get on Big Cats. And the next day I went to the Forestry Commission and told them about it. And they were kind of non-committal. I, I tried to get in touch with the wildlife officer. They didn't get back to me. I remember leaving there. And, and when I spoke to the woman, I said, well, I'm never going back in those forests again. I'm, I'm never. That's, I'm done. And I left there and I sat in the car uh, at the exit to the Forestry Commission. On my right was the way back into town. Uh, and on the left was back into the forest, and I thought, what am I going to do? I can't keep running, I'm going to end up living on a boat in the middle of the River Severn or something, and I'm going to end up, what, scared of sharks or something? And so I turned left and went back into the forest. And I went up to the high peak past the high ridgeline where I'd seen uh, the two black leopards that I'd seen. And I sat there and I'd been talking to an old bloke in his eighties and I saw him walk into the forest with his little dog. And I thought, well, if he's walking into the forest on the exact same path, the the very least I can do is walk a hundred yards behind him to make sure he's okay. And I'll just walk straight back in there. And so the next day I walked back in, I walked to the exact same spot where I'd seen the leopard. I looked through the hole that it had made and watched. And then I could see the bloke was coming coming back and he was waving me on because he knew I had a dog and we didn't want the dogs to bark at each other so I walked out of the forest um, for the next month I sat by the car and I went into the forest occasionally mainly in the middle of the day and looked for evidence and then as time went by up until now I'm starting to go back into the forest at night and I think later in the summer I'm probably going to do a wild camp or two and experiment from there on that
2: i just like to ask, um, James, you know, what you say you, you had to bend down to put the dog on a lead when you yeah, first encountered yeah, yeah. it, what was the dog's reaction whilst this was well, going on? Because people it. quite
0: commonly say
2: that <laughs> their dogs are the first thing that alert them. So. She
0: was completely oblivious. <laughs> it, it was 40 yards <laughs> different distance. It was a strong crosswind blowing up the escarpment. Right. Um, the cat was distanced. She had her head in, in the undergrowth, sniffing away. No, not at all. There's been numerous times since then that she doesn't want to go into the forest. But I think that's because I drag her through the undergrowth looking for big cats. And she, she doesn't like thistles or nettles or wet mud or cold. And I have to carry her. I've got a special rucksack now. I've bought and I put her in the rucksack. And after an hour's walk in wet, cold and wet mud now, she goes in the rucksack and she happily sits there. And I carry her the rest of the way up.
3: James, I get the impression that although you thought this was a terrifying ordeal at the time and was going to make your life miserable, you actually think now it's made your life very much more uplifting and it's given you a sort of new mission as part of your life. Is that
0: right? Definitely, yeah. I'm in the forest every day for a good three, four hours and it used to be that I would go into the forest at night as it got dark at first hour after dark i'd be into the forest and maybe there till midnight and i'd be watching badgers and listening to the owls and stuff like that and i found that fascinating it was amazing there was was one time in particular when i was in there i was walking down this lane and i saw this red dot appear on a tree next to me which told me that there was a hunter hunting deer over my right hand shoulder and it was in his sights and I found that much more scary that somebody had a loaded gun that could kill a deer and it was pointed at me more than a leopard. But yeah, at first I was really scared and it took me a long time edging my way back in and after much research I kind of decided that I'm not likely to get attacked by a leopard. (laughs) <laughs> well I can kind of having relate said to, that yeah yeah, yeah yeah having
2: said that that's yeah. a story for another time but I, I can kind of relate to your reaction to not wanting to go back into the woods after your encounter because I think after my encounter I felt very similar I felt very cautious about not wanting to go into the countryside alone and at night and things of that nature so i think that's a natural reaction i've got a
0: slightly different background there because i used to go fishing all the time and so the amount of nights i've spent in the forest the first time i ever went fishing was on a full moon and i was really scared i was 14 or something like that first time i went night fishing sure But I got used to it. And last year, I spent a year living in my car. I was homeless. And instead of being in towns, I spent the whole time in the forest. And so I'd drive into the forest at night, park up at night, walk the dog. And at first, I was a bit nervous about being in the forest, but you really quickly got used to it. After a year of that, I'd quite happily walk through the forest at night on my own. No problem. That slightly changed when I saw the leopard, but it's kind of gone back to it.
2: I used to do a bit of night fishing years back. I used to go down to sort of Lechlade and do a bit of fishing down there. And again, after my encounter, I I just you can't shake the feeling that there's stuff in the darkness that might know more about you than you know about it. I, and, I think and that's the that that feeling needs to be of being watched.
0: Yeah. When I was a kid, my dad took me into the forest and he left me there to overcome the fear. A coming of age sort of passage. It, it was. Right, of passage. Yeah, m- m- my dad was a veteran and so he had no nothing to do with fear. He said, Fear is a door, you go and knock that door down. And I feel much better now I have. Now I've said, The leopard isn't likely to logically attack me, it eats deer. As long as it's safe watching me from a thicket, I'm not going to get attacked. And so I keep that in my mind is that I'm not going to be afraid. I'm walking into that forest again. And it feels much better to take that affirmative action and and do it. It's just fear. I
2: I really admire that. I I wish I was brave enough myself.
3: James, do you think you should go stealthy in those night walks because it's a good thing to do, but... The consequence of that is somebody out stalking might actually... Get stalked. There's a risk to being stealthy, isn't there?
0: Absolutely. When I saw the leopard, there was two that I'd seen on that path. A cub I'd seen up at the top of the path, on, at the top of the escarpment, and this large, what I presume was a male, because it was on a large path going out of the forest, suggesting that it had a big area. But when I first went in there and I went up the top in these thickets where I thought the leopards might be hanging out, I did actually bang and said hello (laughs) is anybody at home to let whatever's know that i wasn't gonna you know that i was there and so the people there there with firearms yes yeah 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 yeah, yeah. um and i found lots of deer kills that have been chopped up by hunters it's a very hunty area which is why i'm not telling where it is and that yeah but yeah there's times when i more so now that i do silently walk through the forest and i've actually come up with an idea to put foam on my feet I know that sounds crazy, <laughs> this is just a funny idea, um, to put sandals on and a foam underneath, because it's gravelly paths. And no matter how silent you walk on a gravelly path, there's that telltale sign as you're walking up there. And I thought, if I tie some thick foam on the underside of my soles, <laughs> it's just a joke, really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
4: I think you're very brave. I, I come at this from a slightly different viewpoint. I come at it from, a if I make a lot of noise, most things are going to be bothered by me and get out of the way it's extremely unlikely that I'm going to get attacked unless I walk up to this big black cat and say, hey, you know, it's me. I'm coming to see you, dear pussycat. Or I've cornered it somehow or trapped it. I have never felt worried. I've felt incredibly interested, exhilarated, and I want to know more. I sort of think that if I make enough noise, I'm a human, I'm clumsy. They're going to hear me coming a mile away. and you the know, th- They're going to see me if they want to. And I'm going to be very lucky to see them. So I spend a lot of my time looking and hoping and making as much noise as I can.
0: Well, Yeah, the thing is, talking about brave, I'm not brave. I just decided that's what I'm going to do and so I have to get over the fear. Incidentally, I don't wear deodorant when I'm in the forest. I want this big cat to smell my deodorant and get used to that and know that there's a, a semi-aggressive male to not mess with that me <laughs> type of thing. Yeah, Primate, yeah.
1: We, we lived in the middle of the estate in Sussex and at night sometimes we would hear noises that we were fairly sure was leopard and it would be the other side of the valley from where the house was up in the woodlands and we did manage to find tracks on occasions on some of the paths.
3: OK, a little break of proceedings now for our word of the week. And for this episode, it is topography. James, our guest, suggested topography as we were partly talking about that in some of the discussions. And I think of topography as meaning the lie of the land, the form of the landscape. And an actual definition, which is far more clunky, goes like this. The arrangement of the natural and artificial physical features of an area. To me, that sounds like being back in school geography, so I prefer my definition of the lie of the land. And in an email afterwards, James explained that he feels it is the type of topography and the form of the landscape which is crucial in his area of Shropshire for encouraging cats in that landscape. He was saying that it's the ridge lines and steep-sided valleys that make classic cat hunting grounds. And I actually agree with that here in Gloucestershire, where I'm based. We have similar steep valleys within the Cotswolds and on the Cotswolds edges. Those areas yield big cat reports very frequently. And I think it's similar in places like Exmoor and Dartmoor and many other locations. So it's not the wide open moors necessarily, which would attract large cats, but the deep valleys and ridges by those moors and open areas and heathlands. And in thinking about these valley sides and hillsides, as well as the shelter and the prey opportunities they provide, perhaps the cats like the vantage points and the acoustics. They will also want warm sunny spots and they are likely to steer clear of cold, windier aspects of those hillsides. But as James and I said earlier in this episode, flatter landscapes such as in Norfolk and in Lincolnshire still seem to have credible big cat reports. So are the cats getting shelter from the agricultural crops and the prey availability in those crops even? After all, sugarcane areas harbour leopards in parts of Asia and the leopards in those areas can have quite small territories. To conclude our thoughts on topography, I recall chatting to an American guy who trapped, radio-collared and monitored pumas, mountain lions, in desert situations in the American southwest states. I asked him how the pumas there survive with such little vegetation, and his words in response were, oh they hardly need cover, they just need prey. And I guess that was another reference to just how resourceful and cryptic these types of cats can be. And overall I think James is right, it's helpful to think about topography and the lie of the land when we consider how these cats operate. So there's our word of the week, topography. over to Tim from the edge of Gloucester now
2: so I suppose my sighting goes back to I think about 2014 and it was just a normal evening winter's evening about half past seven and I was driving out of Gloucester to another part of Gloucester and rather than go through the city hitting the rush hour or the tail end of the evening rush hour I took a little shortcut down some country lanes um, between Hairsfield and Hardwick in Gloucestershire, which is a lot of farmland and, and sort of open grassland leading up to the beacon up at the top. And there's an, a lane down there, Nass Lane. I was driving down there and You round a corner it becomes a single track lane as you approach an old victorian railway bridge um, and you obviously have to give way to oncoming vehicles and as i was approaching that the first thing that said something's not right here was these two green eyes reflecting in my headlamps the moment i put the full beams on revealed a massive black cat very long in the leg very sort of muscular looking round ears it didn't have the typical pointed ears of a domestic And it had a bit of, as you described, an attitude problem. It it was very much stationary, observing me approaching, not keen to move out of the way. Um, And the whole sort of body language of the thing said, this is my road, you know, what are you doing here? I'm not moving for you. So I slowed down the car pretty quickly and this whole sighting, you know, it must have been less than 10 seconds, maybe even less than that, maybe five seconds. But for those five seconds in my headlamps were a massive black cat. Growing up in Stroud as well, I was very aware of of the legends and the folklore and the sightings. Um, My grandmother, in fact, used to work at Standish Hospital, which backs up onto Standish Woods and Randwick Woods, which is a famous area in Stroud for hot spots of big cat sightings. And it wasn't uncommon for the nurses there to report having seen unusual things, you know, unusual big black shapes in the night. And so growing up with that, I was always aware of it and I wasn't expecting to see what I saw that night. When I got to my brother's house, I got through the door all excited, buzzing like you wouldn't believe, you know. You'll never guess what I've just seen. And his reaction was just typical of everyone's or a large proportion of people that I speak to. And it was very much, um, oh, wonderful. I believe you think you saw a big cat. It's probably a Labrador. Anyway, let's change the channel on the tele. You know, he's really not interested. Blase, glossed over it, keen to talk about other stuff that's a reaction that i've got from a lot of people but i suppose off the back of that that really spurred a passion and interest and something that i can't let go you know some days it's my reason to get up in the morning to look online to see what the latest discoveries are to see what the latest you know sightings reports all the rest of it and yeah it's just fascinating something that i can't let go of almost to the point of obsession but the interesting thing is I'm a nurse, and working in that profession, you do rub shoulders with a lot of people who travel with their work. So we get a lot of foreign nurses, um, people from India come in the nursing profession to come and work in the NHS. You know, as well as our, you know, obviously post-Brexit now, our European uh, friends, but. On night shift, on the occasions where I have the time, it's a settled night, and I'm working with colleagues from India who were born and raised there, I'll start talking. Do you know about the big cats in Britain? Oh, yeah, West Midland Safari Park, they say. And then I have to get YouTube up on the smart telly and say, no, 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 look at this. The reaction is one of astonishment, one of fear one of disbelief these are people who were you know born and raised in india for the most part of their lives and i've seen you know the impact that these creatures have in their native known habitats and when they realize you know yeah the footage is grainy yeah the footage might be sketchy it's not hd it's not national geographic it's not discovery channel but it's enough to make them think and you can look in their eyes and see the fear Well, yeah certainly fear and In fact on one night shift I was working with an agency nurse who came from Africa and she was born and raised on that continent knowing the wildlife quite well. She told me when she first moved to England she lived in a rural area and used to work in a care home and on her journey to work it would entail probably a half a mile walk down a country lane to the nearest bus stop. One day she was walking down there and met a big black cat and she thought I know exactly what that is and it shouldn't be here. Um, And she turned around and returned home, and ever since then, thereafter, until she moved from that area, her husband used to drop her off to the bus stop, you know, to work, she wouldn't walk.
3: I had somebody like that at one of the rural shows in Gloucestershire, actually, maybe the same person. But I
2: just find it really interesting that these people who grow up in different areas know about these creatures in their known native habitat, and when they see and hear of what's going on here, which, you know, seems to be to an extent covered up they're just shocked amazed frightened the look of bemusement and perplexion on their face it just sort of tells it all really Mm. when they think they're coming to england a nice little safe place where there's foxes and badgers and not a lot else to hurt you you know but but, tim
3: that's partly about the false perception of leopards in their native country because yeah that you do get some impacts and incidents involving humans but by and large considering the number of humans and the number of leopards it's actually pretty negligible Yeah.
2: Absolutely. I mean, they're very tolerant, apparently, you know, in the, you know, of human activity being nearby, you know, much more so than the lions and the tigers, you know. Um, you can be within metres of a leopard and not know it, apparently. I've seen the documentaries in India where they recorded, you know, these leopards were within feet of people who were walking down these rural pathways, didn't have a clue, and the leopards weren't bothered, you know, and no one got hurt. So it's not all bad, and it's not all to be scared of, but there is a chance.
0: I, I think the thing with fear is not knowing what you're dealing with, not knowing the set criteria and not understanding the animal when we use the term big cat and a black big cat it's quite vague and we don't know we automatically think it's going to attack us even somebody that was South Africa
2: she, uh, I can't remember the specific region, but she was certainly... Yeah, somewhere where leopards, yeah, leopards yeah. you know, yeah, absolutely com-
0: common. And she was scared of them. But what, what did it for me was simply watching lots of scientific documents from people that have researched them, and to really understand that I'm really not likely to be attacked. I mean, yeah, you probably did you got more- the, the more you really understand the animal, that it's an animal, it's not some weird monster in the fog. And I accept the fear. that as
2: well, but I, I, I would also say that, you know, you're probably, people say, yeah, you've probably got more chance of being sh- struck by lightning or attacked by a shark. No, not or, the
0: chance, it's, it's just logically the worst that's really, really likely to happen is like you're going to be scraped by some claws.
2: <laughs> I don't think.
0: Well, do you know, do you know yeah. that's
2: really likely yeah, to happen. Yeah, yeah. You could die of blood loss from. Well, that.
0: Yeah, 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 you 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 do, you yeah, you could do. You could do, yeah.
2: Or you could have a heart attack in shock you know i mean either either way it's not a prospect i'd like to consider really but it's still it's still to this day it affects my my approach to going in the countryside you know my youth in 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 stroud growing up in the stroud valleys i was always in the woods always up i can't bring myself to do it on my own these days if i've got company it's fine but i won't go in alone see i
0: have to I, i don't have any choice
1: quite frequently a big cat could be up a tree watching you and you'd be totally unaware of its existence, but it would be carefully watching where you were going, where you were going with your dog, and it would just sit there watching you. On other occasions, people have said, well, they ought to see cats being disturbed and flushed out of the countryside a lot more, but a cat can stay there and watch, or it can clear off completely and be long gone before the noise that's disturbed it has really got to the edge of the wood.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely, they're, you know, they're brilliant climbers, and I often think that as well. If I were walking in the woods, would I know if they were above me looking down? Because there's actually a video on YouTube, a comedy, believe it or not, but based around big cats, and it's, it's done very tongue-in-cheek, but in a way that I relate to, and they talk about them, you know, the biggest threat is aerial assaults because they're great climbers and they can jump out of trees and all of that, and of course it's meant to be a ridiculous sort of flight of fancy in this sort of short comedy, but it's a known behaviour. They do climb trees, they are ambush predators, is, you know, and I'm not saying it's a likely thing, you know, it's not going to happen to everyone who goes walking in the woods, but it does make you think, it does make you stop and think.
4: Those of us that have cats as pets, if you watch your cat, and your cat can vanish in front of your face... Gone. There's the cat in the garden. The cat was in the garden because I saw it, and now it's not there. And yep. That
3: doesn't mean to say it's an interdimensional. <laughs> oh, <Hola. laughs> uh,
2: right, Okay. Yeah. It's a shapeshifter. That's what it is. Yeah.
4: And the, the, the other interesting thing I was thinking about you saying about your colleagues from Africa. I was very lucky in my youth. My father was in the RAF, and we went to Africa reasonably, and did safaris and bits and pieces. And like in this country, there are country people and there are town people. Yeah. And the perception of a wild animal between those two groups, even in a country where there are indigenous wild animals, is completely different. I mean, the, the, the farming side of it, the gamekeepers, the guys who work the safaris and that, absolutely, completely fine with wild animals yeah, and wild cats. Yeah. The town people, terrified of them. Yeah. you know, And there's this sort of dichotomy between the two the whole time, I and mean, it's a lack of knowledge of what actually the animal is capable of, what it can do, and I think a lot of folk stories and myth as well. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got this slavering beast sitting up a tree with poisonous drool, and it's going to leap on you and eat you, you know. And actually, you haven't. You've actually got a cat which went 10 minutes ago because it heard you coming.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that that's possibly the truth, but, I mean, there's no getting around the fact you can go on YouTube and look at the videos of these leopards in, in, in India going into urban areas and taking people's pet dogs. There's plenty of CCTV of that happening. So it may be that in the urban areas, they're, they're having more of a visible impact when they do go in there, albeit rarely, you know, perhaps i don't know
3: tim is this a good influence on your life or a bad influence or sort of a bit of both it's a
2: six of one half a dozen of t'other. you know it's a double-edged blade really as i said some days i wake up first thought when i open my eyes is let's find out what's going on in the big cat world and then other days you can drive yourself to madness with the frustrating sort of components of the suppressed evidence query sort of conspiratorial type stuff and then people dismissing it as you've claimed that you've seen the irish alligator or trolls in the bottom of your garden you know none of us are saying that this is a known animal it's just misplaced it's just in the wrong place you know and we know how they got it as well you know Mm -hmm. to me the most frustrating thing is trying to resolve all of that and get to a point where there is mainstream widespread acceptance and we can sort of all move on with this knowledge and there's several barriers to that happening you know but but how
3: you communicate that of course is very sensitive and subtle and i don't think can be done at Uh, with a flick of a switch overnight that's the problem oh I think that's where you
2: come in Rick because (laughs) I'm not very sensitive or subtle I'll come into a room and I'll say I've just seen this and they say oh oh, calm down Tim put the kettle on you know
3: but also you said out of place or worse that effect misplaced well maybe it's demonstrating it's living in a perfectly relevant suitable environment
2: well yeah, I mean if you go back to the, the mosaics at Woodchester Mansion, the old Roman mosaics and uncover those, there are leopards in those thousand-year-old mosaics, so maybe they were already here. Yeah,
1: and the Romans wanted more of them. They <laughs> yeah, maybe. Just, they were
2: maybe. were ordering more. And, maybe. Yeah.
1: I was just going to say that there's a lot of urban ground that people don't actually live on and a lot of shrubbery ground and forest on dual carriageways in and around our cities and they're good places where a cat can go from one bit of cover to another without being seen. It will know just as much as any other wildlife living there that the cars normally don't come off the road, don't disturb them, and they're able to use that as a wildlife corridor to go down and catch rabbits and move from one bit of country to another. And there's a lot of deer moving into towns, particularly Munjack, where the warehouses have been built with a lot of shrubbery around them.
0: certainly as i'm walking through the forest a deer will see me long before i've seen it you know most of the times i'll see wildlife i'll see its backside running in the opposite direction possibly at a hundred yard range and so even to get a photograph of a deer even though i'm walking quietly if if it's a calm day forget it you know Uh, if it's a windy day then I, i have a chance of getting up closer to it but certainly any big cat who's this wit and intelligence is way above a deer naturally because it catches them as part of its food supply it's going to be aware of you through so many different senses long before you're aware of it and that
3: can I just emphasize what you said about edges of towns edges of infrastructure areas edges of roads I have several times had to follow up reports or on land which has been adjacent to a motorway or adjacent to a busy jeweled carriageway very noisy very sort of scary for a human because it's so disturbed and in your face but for a cat that knows that that is a corridor for rabbits and deer That noise is going to mask its predatory behaviour and stealthy action and it can predate easily along those areas knowing there's no human activity, there's human noise in the background.
1: Exactly. People do not go in there anymore. Children do not normally go and play in the woods like we did years ago when we were small children. They spend a lot of their time being taken from one recreational activity to another or they're in their house. So nothing's going in there to disturb the cat.
2: And also, like, coming off the back of that, there's a lot of industrial areas as well, particularly near where I had my sighting in Gloucester. And I actually thought about reporting it to you at the time, Rick, because I've been well aware of your work for years, but I felt there wasn't really much need because Frank Tunbridge was in the paper about a week later and they had plaster casts and paw prints from within a mile of my sighting on the industrial estate nearby. So they obviously are coming into urban areas, perhaps not residential areas, but you know, nonetheless, they're, they're in and around the industrial estates and perhaps scavenging. You know, hunting whatever they might be doing, but those areas, particularly at night when the factories are closed, there's no one around. You know,
3: we used to joke that that area you're talking about was Nass visible. Lane, you mean? Well, no, the water wells area, oh, the water wells, where the, yeah, where the
2: um, within a mile of my um, yeah. in sure. We
3: used to joke between us that you could see one there from the police control tower at yeah. the Gloucestershire Constabulary headquarters. Now, I then um, two years ago had a chance to talk to a police officer about big cats, and she said you never believe this, she said. I used to work in the control tower at Waterwells and I saw one out the window and nobody believes me.
2: See, well, I, I've spoken to police officers about it, and there is still no general consensus about, you know, about it. Some of them say, "Ah, oh, it's a load of nonsense," but others that are charged with that responsibility, but particularly the wildlife officers, I, I think I can go back to the Monster Quest episode that was done on big cats in Britain, and there's a wildlife officer on that from Gloucestershire who quite openly says, "We think we've got two black leopards in the county," and offers sensible advice, not sensationalist. You know, he's not saying, "Oh, you know, don't go out, take a gun with you, or anything like that," but he is saying, "This is possible. They're out there." It's just in Interesting that the police do seem to sort of have an awareness of it and a willingness to share that information with the public. But
3: could you tell us about the signs that have gone up? It's been a talking point amongst <laughs> us um, in yeah. the big cat
2: fraternity in Gloucestershire. So, so I was quite amazed, really, to see um, the Guardian did a printout. I think it was last April, wasn't it? Um, there was a big article in the Guardian, and one of the pictures in there was a little sign, a laminated picture of, of a black cat warning sign. And apparently these have been stuck up around various areas in Gloucestershire now I, without revealing the identity of the person involved I can say that I know the person and his intention um, it came from a good place He's very much a rambler and someone who likes to spend time in the countryside, you know. And after having an encounter where he didn't he openly admits he didn't see anything, having come across bones and bits and bobs over over the years, he's still not actually seen anything in the flesh, but it was the reaction of his dogs that day that determined I should actually do something about this, you know. And th- this guy he lives and breathes for the wilderness. So out. he went one day to put these signs up and, and it's something that made me laugh as he was telling me about it was he was up around Woodchester Mansion, which is a hot spot for all. sorts of weirdness not meaning to sort of digress and sort of undermine the work you're doing but he was outside Woodchester Mansion putting up a sign you know, to warn people about big cats and as he was doing so a busload of ghost hunters came out and so he told me I nearly got busted by the ghost people putting up a sign about big cats which just made me laugh you know and so that's that really so you know the mystery of who put those signs up around Stroud it's going to sort of stop with me really I'm not going to give away the name of the man involved really but I can say that it was coming from a good place and an intention to warn the public and sort of, perhaps he could have put better signs up really but <laughs>
3: well, it was very interesting because they were in pretty much ex- the exact places some of us would have selected and identified as hotspots, I don't know whether he knew that.
2: He's clued up he's a member of the National Trust, he's a hiker any um, sort of national walk that you can do, the Cotswold Way, whatever the Brecon Beacons, you know, he, he's done it all.
3: So he's done his homework on he's, it, yeah. it Well,
2: it just lived experience of being in the British wilderness, you know, and over time stories, encounters, things that have made him think and one day out with his dogs and he thought right something's there that I can't see I've heard enough
3: yeah, okay, and, and the ghost hunters at Woodchester Mansion is notorious and does has overnight people hiring the place out to yeah, sort yeah. Of with, with their recording equipment. Now, some of them have reported from the park, adjacent to the big old mansion, the ghostly wailing of a lady in distress at night. And, of course, I think one person realised, looked that up and realised that might have been a puma rather than a ghost. And yeah, So yeah. we've had a puma report from a ghost hunter.
2: Well, is, I mean, that's interesting. Maybe we'll get ghost reports from cat hunters. You never know. We could swap, yeah. <laughs> (laughs) yeah yeah that's it that's another podcast though i think rick
3: guys i think on that note we've run out of time okay is it your round (laughs) <laughs> well i'm not doing any more pub evenings so they work out like this well i want to thank everybody for taking part in the first big cat podcast pub evening and we're going to do this again so anybody listening who wants to suggest we go to their area visit their pub and do this elsewhere that would be very welcome so uh, marie walter james and tim thanks ever so much for being part of episode 18 of big cat conversations thank you very much cheers then. cheers everybody Okay. There are several announcements before we sign off for this episode. First of all, I thought I'd mention some points which emerged from the talk at Longhope in the Forrester Dean before we had this podcast pub discussion. So at the end of that talk, we had a discussion amongst the audience and we sampled people's attitudes about big cats being around. And as usual, when I do these surveys, most people say things like, leave the cats alone, try and understand them better. And some people also suggested putting up information signs. And when we asked for some specific comments later on, one lady said, these cats bring back our wilderness to us. Two women actually went home sceptical. They actually didn't want to take in anything that was said at the event and remained sceptical. And then there was one lady who walks her dogs in the local forest and she was worried after hearing about possible local big cat reports. The event suddenly changed her view on the local woods and countryside and that was disappointing to me because the last thing I want to do is talk about big cats and scare people because the talks and the discussions are a chance to think it all through and allow people to try and come to terms with the possibility of big cats being around but not in a scary situation. And a quick mention about our last episode when we mentioned the mid-90s Ministry of Agriculture investigation of Bodmin Moor. I'd heard that some farmers didn't want to play ball with the Ministry of Agriculture and basically turned them away saying there was nothing to investigate on their farms. And they did that because they just didn't want to be inspected for any reason, let alone possible big cat activity. But I've since heard from a good contact of mine that apparently some farmers were keen to show what they felt was evidence or signs of the cats on their land to that investigation and they weren't happy when all of that was dismissed. So the situation was a bit more mixed in terms of viewpoints of farmers than what I mentioned in the last episode in my discussions with Neil who farms close to Bodmin Moor. Now, in terms of future pub evenings, one of the areas we have scheduled is Somerset, so please get in touch if you're interested in being a guest in a pub in Somerset to discuss Big Cat reports. There is also a good new Facebook group for Somerset, and it's called Big Cat Sightings in Somerset, UK. And in fact, if there is interest in a get-together in a pub in Somerset soon, combined with the podcast recording, please let Felicity know who runs that Facebook group. We're thinking of going to a pub in or near the Mendips, and of course any other suggestions for pub evenings are welcome for anywhere else, so please email me if you have ideas. For our next episode, we'll be back in the Forest of Dean, hearing of reports from the huge forested area itself. We'll be calling in on Alan and Neil straight after an all-night vigil of theirs in the forest, and we'll be hearing about their own reports from the area over recent years. Their recent encounters involve one large cat seen with a thermal camera in February this year, 2020, and a couple of years ago, a cub followed by its mother. We may even have a photo put on the website of that one, so watch this space. Okay, that's it for this episode, everyone. If you're listening on schedule in Britain, I hope you're not affected by these ghastly floods from the jet stream weather that continues to grind on. So please stay safe. Thanks for listening and all the best.